Hello, everyone. This is Melody Gallimore, and I am recording um, emergency nursing of the adult. This is what we would have covered in class on Monday. Um, be sure to review pediatric emergencies presentation that's in D2L, as well as podcast part one and two that are also listed in D2L. So make sure that you go over, over all of that information that will be included on your exam. So um, <clears throat> we think about the emergency room uh, a lot of times as organized chaos. It is wrought with uncertainty, for sure. Um, you do never know what is going to come through the door um, because it can change from day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. Um, so what is the nurse's role in the emergency room? You have to kind of think um, big picture when you're talking about what is the nurse's role. So think about this. How many doors can the patient come through? The patient can come through the front door. Um, and you'll see what I mean by doors. But they can come walk in the front door, right? So they can come in that direction. They can come in through the emergency room. That is um, what we consider the back door. That's the ambulance bay. Um, or they can actually come from the hospital itself. So that could be a staff member or a visiting family member, right? So there are different ways that a patient can get down to the ER. When they come in through that front door, when you you walk in, you're a walk-in ER patient, not brought through the emergency bay. Um, you go through what is called something called triage. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that word before, but triage um, is where they go and figure out who is a true emergency and who needs a different level of care. So triaging means placing patients based on what level of care that they need. So there is a sense of urgency for sure. Um, you have to remember that time is tissue. Uh, I know when we talk about um, especially things like stroke, uh, anything involving the brain, we always, 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 always think about what are those parameters. We want to get that patient through and seen as fast as possible because it doesn't take that long for brain tissue to become faulty when it doesn't have oxy adequate oxygenation. So time is tissue, especially with true emergencies. And then you think about um, patients who are sick versus not sick. This is where your initial assessment, um, that's just your visual, the part where you're not necessarily touching the patient or getting their vital signs or things like that. You're going to worry um at this point, when you're triaging, you're worrying about are these people walkie-talkie versus being acutely ill, and it's a little bit different. There's a little bit different um, scenario with that.
Okay, so we think about um, the ER adult versus pediatrics. There are some big differences um, in pediatric patients versus adults. So I want you all to answer these questions on your own. How does this change your approach to your assessment and providing treatment? Um, are you afraid of working with sick children? Does it seem like something you would not be able to handle? Um, do you feel like emotionally you would not be equipped or or it might be too sad for you? Uh, and if that's you, that is perfectly fine. It is okay. Um, the most important thing we can do in nursing is know ourselves and our own limitations. Uh, I understand if someone is not able to work with children, I would totally get that. So um, these are questions you have to answer for yourself that no one else can answer that for you. Um, you have to think about patient advocacy. This is still uh, extremely important despite the patient's age, um, but it might look differently based on the population that you're treating. So you think about um, pediatric population, they are, uh, it is a different population to care for completely. They decompensate much faster than adults. They'll be fine, they'll be fine, and then they'll just tank on you. And then the next day, oh, I'm fine. They bounce back really fast. Um, they have a higher metabolic rate. So that does things to the way the medications are processed in their body. Um, they do have a larger head. So that's one of the reasons why uh, you look at a baby, uh, even up to six months, one year old, their head circumference compared to their body size is much, uh, it's, it's actually gigantic for their little bodies, but it's supposed to be, that's the brain. It's growing. One of the things that we take whenever you have a baby coming in um, for their well child checkups when they're an infant, we're always measuring that head circumference. One of the reasons we do that is to make sure that um, it, maybe the rate of the size of their head isn't growing too fast or it's not too big. Sometimes that can be indicative of other things, other problems, um, you know, hydrocephalus, that sort of thing. Um, depending on the age of the child, they might not be able to com communicate verbally. Um, and then there are a lot of social and family factors that you have to take into account. When you think about um, adults, you always consider, uh, one, that they have different disease processes due to aging. So um, you do a lot of chronic disease management. You do um, you know, comorbidities a lot of the times, that sort of thing. Uh, and then one of the things that adults are very susceptible, especially aging adults, uh, is decreased renal function. That's one of the things that, um, especially when you're looking at that older population, that we talk a lot about because of the fact that um, the kidneys are so sensitive to uh, oxygenation changes. So we talk a little bit about triage. Um, triage means to sort. Uh, it's a French word. So you treat uh, live, oh, excuse me, you treat the life-threatening injuries first. Um, those are the people who get seen first. They get triaged to the front of the list. Um, when you're triaging patients, 
experience matters. It is something that definitely uh, plays a role in your ability to triage patients, how much experience that you have. And you don't worry about it because um, you're, no one expects you to be the expert your first year out of nursing. This is impossible. It's impossible. Um, but as you get experience and um, progress in nursing, your clinical experience and understanding continues to grow the more um, exposure and experience that you get. So, um, again, we're looking at aging Uh sick, excuse me, not aging. We're looking at patients as are they sick versus not sick. So what part of the nursing process is this? Um, this is that assessment phase. Do vital signs always matter? Well, I mean, that's a tricky question. Um, assessment definitely is the key here. Uh, you have to do your initial eyes only um, determination and then you're going to get vital signs. You're not doing vital signs right off of the bat. You have to use your eyes first and see if this patient, for instance, is in respiratory distress. If they are, where do they go? Front of the line, right? We're going to see them immediately if a patient's in respiratory distress. So you're in those situations, you're thinking airway, breathing, circulation. Well, technically it's circulation, airway, breathing. And you'll remember that from your BLS. Um, then you're going to do the vital signs. And there are many times you can tell by looking at a patient that they are sick. You can see cyanosis. You can see pallor. You can see ascites. You can see um, that a person's lost a lot of fluid. Uh, also, though, I want you to understand that this is a practice that takes time. And you have to become more proficient at it and learn how to trust your instincts. The thing about this is if you think something is off, you must communicate that feeling with someone. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't sit on it. If you think something is wrong, communicate communicate what you're feeling, what you're sensing. Um, if you feel you cannot go to the attending physician, that is okay. Um, but find your charge nurse. Find another nurse with experience uh, and someone that you trust and take those concerns forward. Don't just um, sit on. Okay. Okay. Moving right along to the next page. This is your emergency um, severity index. And <clears throat> this is how we, this is a very important slide. There are going to be some test questions over this. I can already tell you. This is how we triage the patients. It is based on interventions needed for treatment, the severity of their illness. So it's um, level one through five with one being the most severe. So a one would be like a code blue, immediate um, injury, a life-threatening illness, that sort of thing. D respiratory distress, that would be level one. A level five, the patient came in for a medication refill. Okay, this is your emergency se severity index one through five. Read, understand these, and get an understanding of what type of illness and injury fits in what category. Okay, note that this takes time and it takes experience. You want to be familiar with an ESI of number one being most severe and number five being the, mo the least severe. Um, 
experience matters probably more than anything else in triage and properly assigning ESI uh, takes experience. So you're not going to become an expert until you've been working for most likely several years. And even then you'll occasionally miss triage a patient. It happens um, and that is okay. Okay, so if you'll take a look at this um, chart, this is uh, more information about ESI 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So first thing you're going to do is assess the patient for threats to their life. Are they in imminent danger of dying? Okay, that's the very first question that you ask. If it's an ES1, that, that the answer to that is yes. Okay, that's how they um, are triaged to the, they're, they're listed as an ESI-1 and receive immediate care. An ESI-2 is a high-risk patient who should not um, wait to be seen. Are they a high-risk patient who should not wait to be seen? Um, the patients who do not meet ESI-1 or 2 they are assigned three, four, or five based on the resources that they actually need. So one thing to note is that three, four, and five have normal vital signs. Okay. Three, four, and five are normal vital signs. Abnormal vital signs are a two, ESI two, or an ESI one. So now you're going to talk um, about what happens in trauma. So uh, the primary survey um, for trauma patients, we will do a primary and a second secondary survey. For non-trauma patients, they will do a primary survey followed by a more focused assessment. So that primary sur survey, um, it talks about the airway. Um, so we have to protect the airway. You know that. Um, we might have to do that jaw thrust maneuver. They might need intubation. Um, they might have some, or they might have an inhalation uh, injury. They might have a penetrating injury. That is a, what we're looking at with the primary survey is airway breathing circulation. Um, so it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, if you'll notice. So airway number one, breathing, number two. So do they have anaphylaxis? Are they having something called flailed chest? Do they have pneumothorax? Um, any of those things we're going to address first because we know uh, primary survey, A, B, C. C is circulation. Um, is the patient hemorrhaging? Uh, are they having cardiac injury, cardiac tamponade, or shock? The D in the A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, the D stands for disability. So you do your neuro exam. Um, you're going to do a Glasgow Coma Scale. You're looking to see, do they have a head injury? Is this a stroke? Um, are they wearing a cervical collar? That sort of thing. And then the E has to do with exposure, um, the environment. So what has happened to the patient? So what you're going to do at this point, um, you uh, this is the exposure part is where you're going to cut off the patient's clothes. Um, you have to be really careful 
when you're cutting off a patient's clothes, you're not just cutting and getting them off of them as fast as possible. You have to be really careful not to cut through any evidence. Um, If you have a gunshot wound, do you think you would cut right through the gunshot wound? No, you're going to cut around because that might be used later in, you know, as evidence in a case. Um, So you don't want to, for instance, damage the blood splatter area. Right. So you want to cut around the gunshot wound or the entry wound. Um, if the patient has what's called an, uh, you know, an impaled object, um, that's not something that we are going to take out. I'm not sure if you all have heard this before. You do not ever, ever remove an impaled object because the patient can bleed to death right in front of you. So instead, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Instead, you will stabilize that impaled object. Um, and we, it, we wait to remove. Um, so that's the exposure or environmental part. The next is the, um, family or the, they'll facilitate the family. Uh, so you want to, um, involve family as much as possible. Um, we talked earlier in this semester about family presence during, uh, resuscitation. So that's where you're kind of thinking about these sorts of things. And then the G get, um, resuscitation, you get adjuncts. So, um, this is all, by the way, occurring, uh, simultaneously. So a lot of times that, um, Well, we'll talk about it on the next week. Let's move on. Okay. So what are the adjuncts? So the part of the G where it says get um, adjuncts. So that is what we call LMNOP, right? This is another mnemonic. So the L is labs. So we're always going to draw a CBC, a CMP type and screen because they might go to surgery. Um, you're going to get their RH status, pregnancy test, um, a toxicology screen, coagulation profile, cardiac labs, and a UA. Those are just the standard um, adjuncts for uh, when someone comes in. This is part of a primary survey, uh, especially if they've come in with a trauma. So you're definitely going to draw all of those labs. Uh, the M is monitor EKG. So we want to make sure that their heart rhythm is stable and their heart rate is stable. Next, N, nasogastric tube. So we want a nasogastric tube on the patients because we may um, need to decompress their stomach contents. We might need to test to see if there is blood in their stomach contents. Remember though, and we talked about this last year in lab, I'm sure, um, not, we are not going to place an NG tube on people who have facial and head trauma. Remember that you can have injuries to the palate in the nose and put that nasogastric tube right into someone's brain, right? So if the person, if we suspect that they have uh, facial and head trauma, we are not going to place that NG tube. Instead, we're going to use an orogastric tube. Um, if they're, if they have facial trauma. And then the next, uh, for O is oxygenation and ventilation. We might need to put the patient on a ventilator. Um, we might need to just provide supplemental oxygen. It depends on what's going on with them. And then the pain assessment. So that's what is meant by the adjuncts. 
Now, the secondary survey begins after the primary survey is done and um, starting any life-saving interventions. So um, history and physical, your history and your head-to-toe assessments go into secondary survey. Um, The symptoms, so there's another mnemonic, it's sample, S-A-M-P-L-E, so sample. So symptoms associated with the injury or the illness, allergies, um, are there any food allergy, drug allergies, latex allergies, environmental? Uh, and then if they have their tetanus status, sometimes, sometimes the patients are able to provide this information and sometimes they're not. We're using, we're relying on family at this point to, um, be able to report this history if possible. M is medication history. What medication are they on? What have they had today? What brought them in? You know, you want to get a thorough history. Um, P is past health history, pre-existing medical or psych conditions, surgery, smoking history, recent drug use or alcohol use, last menstrual period, and then what is their baseline baseline mental status. And then L is um, what's their last meal? Do you know when they ate? How much did they eat? That sort of thing. And then when you look at E, you're looking at the events or the environmental factors leading to the illness or injury. And there's a more, a very thorough list on page 1610 of Lewis. Um, the secondary survey is really important. It's a, it's a very systematic process. The goal is to identify all of their injuries. Now, realize that a person may come in with a, tra- a trauma, say a car accident, motor vehicle accident. You have the injuries that you can see that with your eyes, you can visualize, but there might be a lot of additional internal injuries going on that we just can't see, right? So that's part of um, primary survey is addressing what we can see and what we know is life-threatening, airway, breathing, circulation, secondary survey. Okay, we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're doing that head-to-toe assessment. I wonder if they have any abdominal bleeding. Is there, uh, have, have we had a liver laceration? Do we have a GI bleed, right? Uh, is there some fractures that we are not aware of? What's going on with the patient? The details of the incident are very important because of the mechanism of injury. And the injury pattern pattern can actually predict what specific injuries the patient could have. For instance, if someone is a front seat passenger in a car, we may see that they've hit their head or their forehead or or have some, you know, facial cuts, lacerations, that sort of thing. But we might not yet have found the fact that they have a femur fracture or a knee fracture, right? So mechanism of action is really important so that we get the full picture. Um, there's a little bit about blast injuries in this PowerPoint. We want you all to read over those and have an understanding of um, what they entail. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on them, but I do want you guys to kind of look into it. What we're going to spend a little more time on is chest trauma. So um, go ahead to slide 14. 
So the first thing that you're looking at when someone has had chest trauma, um, breathing. So obviously we're looking at airway breathing circulation, always the first things, right? So, uh, breathing, there could be breathing issues. You're looking at seatbelt sign, um, where they have injuries where the seatbelt went. You're looking for crepitus. Uh, there might be blast injury evidence. There might be bruising. So think about what would you expect to see in their vital signs? Um, what do you expect their heart rate and their rhythm to be? Uh, when you have a patient who has had any type of blunt chest trauma, that's the way we refer to it. So a motor vehicle accident, the patient has a seatbelt on. We would call that blunt chest trauma versus a penetrating chest trauma, which would be like a knife, a uh, gunshot wound, an arrow, a stick, that sort of thing. Anything that penetrates that um, chest wall. Uh, so chest injuries themselves range from rib fractures to cardio uh, or cardiac respiratory arrest, right? Uh, they are described, like I said, as blunt or penetrating. Um, they can cause shearing and compression of chest structures. The thing that's very, very tricky about chest trauma is that it might appear like a very minor injury at first glance. And that's very dangerous. Um, you might just think, oh, they've got some bruising on their chest. Big deal. Right. But what if they have some type of a rib fracture that has um, punctured or lacerated their lung tissue? Right. So that takes what just appears like a bruise where the um, seatbelt went and turns it into the patient has a collapsed lung. So much more serious. That's why your assessment is so, so important. I'm going to talk a little bit about cardiac tamponade. Um, what happens here is that blood will collect in that pericardial sac. So in the sac that surrounds the heart. And when that happens, first of all, you're not supposed to have blood in there. So when you have blood collecting in that sac, it compresses your myocardium, puts a lot of pressure on the actual tissue of the heart which prevents your ventricles from from filling fully. And it also is going to affect the contraction because the sac around the heart is just, it's like it's being squeezed. Some of the um, clinical manifestations of cardiac tamponade are muffled, distant heart sounds. They will have hypotension, um, neck vein distension, and then increased central venous pressure. So uh, these are the things that we're looking for for cardiac tamponade. Um, this is one of the dangers of uh, chest trauma uh, is people developing cardiac tamponade. How do we fix this? What type of intervention? They can do a par pericardiocentesis. Um, that's just where they remove some of the fluid uh, with a needle and let some of release some of that pressure. Um, so they will do that as appropriate. Okay, so flail chest uh, is another extremely fascinating thing that happens in trauma. Um, I'm going to tell you what it is technically. It's a fracture of two or more adjacent ribs in two or more places with what they have done is lost their chest wall stability. So it's almost like a square 
uh, of a break, right? It, you must watch the video to get what flail chest is. Let me see if I can get it to play, actually. So one of the things that they call this is paradoxical respiration. That's really, really important that you know that term, paradoxical respiration, okay? Know what that means. Um, paradoxical movement of the chest wall. What it is is the way that it moves um, out and away from the chest wall. That's what they call paradoxical movement. Um, it's just abnormal, but that is a very... Uh, classic question that they are going to ask you on the NCLEX. If they get a question about flail chest, paradoxical chest movement will be on there. Um, it's asymmetric. It's uncoordinated movement of the thorax, uh, poor ventilation. Obviously, you're not going to get good ventilation with that type of um, breathing pattern. So what are we going to do um, intervention-wise? They're going to do a chest x-ray. Oxygen is needed pain oh it's very painful so they're going to give analgesia um most likely intubated uh and mechanical ventilation that's almost yeah every time um they are going to treat what other injuries are around that and quite possibly might do surgery so Another one of the main things that happens in trauma is what's called a tension pneumothorax um it occurs when air enters the pleural space, but it cannot escape, okay? So what it does is it causes a mediastinal shift to the other direction. So this is the affected area. This is the affected lung, and it causes a shift. So it shifts over the mediastinal area into what's called the good lung or the good area and um, compresses uh the lung tissue, the good lung tissue, you will get something. This is another classic sign and symptom, tracheal deviation, tracheal deviation. Make sure you know that ver verbiage. Uh, just like with flail chest, paradoxical movement of the chest is classic wording. Tracheal deviation is classic wording for tension pneumothorax. Okay. Um, so what is the result of this? It is going to affect in a ne negatively affect oxygenation, um, venous return, cardiac output. It will eventually fail. Um, it's a very dangerous, uh, situation. Attention pneumothoraxes. So essentially it, with this air is entering the pleural space and it cannot escape. Clinical manifest manifestations of attention pneumothorax is the patient has severe dyspnea, marked tachycardia. Their heart is trying to beat to compensate for the oxygen uh, issue. Plus, they're in a lot of pain. They're going to have decreased or actually quite potentially completely absent breath sounds. 
Um, they, their neck veins are going to be distended. They're cyanotic and they may most likely are going to have profuse diaphoresis. Another thing that's not listed on here is projectile vomiting. Many times patients with tension pneumothorites will be projectile vomiting as well. So this is obviously a medical emergency. Um, we must use a needle to decompress the pressure and air on the other side of the affected side, followed by uh, a chest tube. That is how you fix it with a drainage system. So chest tube with a drainage system, usually such suctions. That's tension pneumothorax. Um, the next thing is a hemothorax. And what is that? Um, there's hemothorax, there's pneumothorax. Hemothorax itself is accumulation of blood in the pleural space from an injury to the chest wall. Um, maybe it's an injury to the diaphragm, the lung, blood vessels, or mediastinum. So whatever happens, however the injury occurs, you get blood in the pleural space, right? There's an injury, you get blood in the pleural space. The patient is going to present with a, to us with this dyspnea. Um, they may have decreased breath sounds. Abs they may even have absent breath sounds on that affected side. So on this patient here, uh, right side is a hemothorax. That patient has a hemothorax on the right side. When you listen to that right lower lobe, odds are you are going to have decreased breath sounds in the right lower lobe or maybe even absent breath sounds, okay? There's a um, also decreased hemoglobin because you've got blood in the area, not in circulation, and then you could possibly have a patient going into shock. So what do we do for interventions? We're going to do a chest tube with a, a plugged into a drainage system, so puts a suction, um, may have a auto transfusion of collected blood, and we eventually will have to treat the hypovolemia as needed with IV fluids and packed red blood cells. So um, make yourself familiar with hemothorax and go ahead and read a little bit about pneumo as well. Pneumo is air collected in the um, pleural space from an injury. They'll also um, treat that with a chest tube as well. So nursing interventions, we are going to cover an open wound with a ventilated dressing. So usually they're going to use an occlusive dressing that we secure on three different sides. So air is allowed to escape out, but it doesn't come in generally. Um, we do not ever remove an impaled object. You stabilize that object with some kind of a bulky dressing and you wait for the healthcare provider um, to arrive on the scene and then let them uh, work with it or after the patient has been transported transported to the hospital. Uh, you would never do it, uh, remove an impaled object in the field because the patient will bleed to death and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, most patients who have chest trauma, we do anticipate chest tube insertion. Um, we're going to place those patients on high flow oxygen to keep their O2 sats greater than 90, we're going to do, uh, make sure they have IV access. Um, usually we will be running them on fluids because sometimes they come to us and they're already hypovolemic. Um, so they'll be getting fluids. We want two large bore catheters. Large bore meaning what? What does that mean? Um, usually it's 18 uh, or 20 if pushed, but usually 18 is what I would go with. 
So um, we need the catheters already established. So we're not trying to do that in a rush. Um, we want the patient in semi-fowler's position that helps with breathing. And then if they're, um, they can be in the semi-fowler's position if we have ruled out cervical spinal injury, right? We never want to do that if we're not sure if the patient has a cervical spine injury, right? Because that can cause long-term uh, lasting damage. We will anticipate intubation for respiratory distress, and we're going to provide analgesia to the patient as well. Um, okay, that pretty much wraps up chest uh, trauma. I'm going to move right along to abdominal trauma. So um, think about assessment. What would you expect to see um, with an abdominal uh, with abdominal trauma? So you can think about the seatbelt sign. You're going to see that classic bruising. Um, we will obtain vital signs. With abdominal trauma, you also have blunt um, injury or penetrating injury. Uh, so blunt injury, motor vehicle accidents, excuse me, motor vehicle crashes or accidents, direct blows, um, falls, patient being crushed, uh, blast injury, compression injury, shearing injuries, right? That's usually what you get with blunt abdominal trauma. With a penetrating trauma, um, we have those knife injuries, gunshot wounds, impalement, and um, things like that. So start thinking about what might be happening inside of the patient's body. Okay. So you have um, uh, bleeding. You might get bleeding in intra-abdominally, right? Uh, you could get issues from having fractures from abdominal trauma. So you could have fractures to the ribs. You could have fractures to the pelvis. Um, you could have spinal injuries. You can have spinal cord injuries or thoracic injuries. Cervical um, just depends, I guess. But for for abdominal, we're thinking um, thoracic and lumbar. Um, patients can also develop something. Uh, this is interesting. You don't see it ev every time, but um, sometimes called abdominal compartment syndrome, abdominal compartment syndrome. And what that is, is excessively high pressure inside of the abdomen. And they get that um, from swelling of internal organs. You can get that from bleeding of internal organs, um, peritoneal uh, injury, that sort of thing. And what is happening when you have um, in abdominal compartment syndrome is um, you get a really high pressure in the abdomen that eventually is going to restrict ventilation um, and potentially can cause respiratory failure. So the patient technically has decreased cardiac output, decreased venous return, and then it's also going to affect um, arterial perfusion to their lungs or their, excuse me, not lungs, but their organs, right? Because they have so much abdominal pressure um, that the organs, uh, first of all, the arteries aren't going to get fresh blood to the area and then the organs aren't going to be functioning properly. So what are some of the clinical manifestations of this? Uh, patient's going to have guarding, abdominal guarding, um, splinting if they move. Hard distended abdomens are very common with abdominal trauma. Um, decreased bowel sounds or even absent bowel sounds. Um, they may have abrasions or bruising, uh, pain for sure. 
Um, let's see, their diaphragm might actually rupture because the abdominal pressure is so much. They could develop bruits, which you would hear um, upon auscultating uh, the area, usually in those um, the vasculature, using your bell um, to hear to listen to your vasculature. They might have what's called colon sign. We talked about this um, earlier, so make sure you know what Cullen sign and what Gray-Turner sign is. That's the bruising on the um, flanks, so make sure that you know what those are. This can result in internal bleeding, obviously, and eventually, what do we get with internal bleeding? We get something called hypovolemic shock, right? So, just a reminder. Um, Diagnostic-wise, we're going to do labs, CBC, a UA. Um, most likely, they're going to have blood in their urine. They might do a CMP, type of Crossmax, because they might go to surgery, ABGs, and then um, PT to see if they develop some kind of clotting issue. Imaging, they're going to do that, they call it FAST, Focused Assessment, Sonic ography in trauma so fast it's an ultrasound so focus assessment with sonography sonography in trauma um, basically going to go in using ultrasound and look for um, abdominal bleeding and then we might go ahead and do a ct scan if the patient is stable if they are not stable we cannot do a ct scan okay Nursing interventions, um, primary sec primary assessment, secondary assessment. We're going to monitor their vital signs. Um, oxygen therapy as needed. Uh, control bleeding, IV access. We talked about that, so it's not much different really than chest trauma. Stabilize impaled objects if there are any. Do not remove those. Um, cover the protruding organ or tissue. So if there is organ coming out or visible, you want to cover that. Um, indwelling catheter, an NG tube to low intermittent wall suction. What are we doing with that? One, you want to decompress the abdomen, and two, you want to look for blood. Okay, um, penetrating trauma is an injury that occurs when an object pierces the skin and enters the body, creating an open wound. So you can have a penetrating head trauma, neck trauma, penetrating chest trauma, abdominal trauma, or a penetrating trauma in an extremity. Um, they're not as life-threatening, uh, luckily, but they can cause permanent disability and a lot of pain. Um, and then you might have what's called a perforating injury, and that's where um, the object goes all the way through, creating an entry and an exit wound. So we get those with a lot of times with gunshots, gunshot wounds, that sort of thing. And then um, there are other medical emergencies that come through the emergency room, emergency department. Strokes come in there. Um, strokes have a goal of 45 minutes from door to CT. That's the goal. Uh, that's what gets you certified as a level one stroke center. Um, we have MIs, heat strokes, heat exhaustion, burns, poisoning, pulmonary embolism, child abuse, and sexual assault are always tricky. Um, that's one of the other topics that we ask you to review in uh, D2L. So make sure that you do um, cover child abuse. 
Um, what are some of the legal considerations? I want you guys to read over this, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time um, on it in this PowerPoint, uh, just in this recording, because, you know, it's kind of straightforward and um, very logical. So just make sure that you do cover it, that you read over the legal considerations because it's part of your testing. Just know that, um, think about what factors do you think contribute to a healthcare professional's decision whether um, to stop and provide aid to a patient like uh, out in the community. Um, what basic aid would you feel comfortable providing if you do not have an emergency or trauma background? I know for me, I don't have an emergency background. I do have some trauma experience, but it's more uh, on the floor. Um, what I would feel comfortable with would be chest compressions. And I will tell you that pretty much everyone will tell you the thing that saves lives is quality chest compressions. So I don't feel too bad about that. Um, I know basic things and that's fine. It's good enough. And I can give compressions like nobody's business. So if that's you, totally fine. Uh, quality compressions are extremely important. Without quality compressions, you are not getting proper oxygenation and the patient will have um, deficits. So if you only feel comfortable giving compression, then you just give compressions. Okay. Um, okay. So <clears throat> we're talking about legal considerations. You want to know about the Good Samaritan Law. It's really important to um, know about, especially as a nurse, um, and what that means for you and how how it protects you out in the community if you were to help, uh, if you come across an accident or something like that. As a licensed healthcare professional, you are under no le legal obligation to stop and give aid. If you do stop, you assume no, you assume an obligation not to leave the scene until sufficiently trained first responders arrive and assume control. Many states encourage healthcare professionals to stop and give aid by having Good Samaritan laws. These laws, which vary somewhat state to state, offer immunity from lawsuit for bystanders who offer aid in emergencies, except in the case of gross negligence. A Good Samaritan must not be in the place of employment or underemployment conditions. An example of gross negligence may be refusing to help someone who obviously had a serious hemorrhage in favor of a person with a minor injury because the bleeding person looked old or disheveled. Immunity covers only the scene of the accident and not later care under the supervision of healthcare providers. If there is a national disaster, an act of terrorism, or a major emergent need for healthcare providers, you may be required to go to an assigned site to offer aid. You would not be covered by the Good Samaritan Act under these circumstances. And you can find this in Lewis on page 1621. But what is MTALA? That's important. Um, MTALA is the law. Um, what that is, is that an as an emergency room who receives funds from the government, we must 
and it is must, non-negotiable, provide all patients with a medical screening examination. We must also stabilize any patient with an emergency medical condition or three and or transfer or accept appropriate patients as needed. It is the law. This is non-negotiable. Um, this is talking about refusal of care. We are not allowed to refuse care to patients. So <clears throat> as you're doing your readings, I want you to think about those sorts of things. Um, so let's think about health promotion. You want to be aware of um, social, cultural, economic, age-related differences and how it impacts access to care and how you would provide care to your patients. This is especially evident in emergency rooms across the United States. Patient teaching is imperative. Um, providers brief their patients, but patients often need reinforcement from nurses. I think I've said this in my class before. You may not realize this, but you are all teachers. From this point forward, every single one of you are teachers. You are there to teach the patients, right? You teach them, if you work in an emergency room, you are teaching them when to come back to the ED. And you are also reinforcing the um, safety measures, right? And that the patients do certain things to keep themselves safe. And then you're also um, teaching them about follow-up care and how important that follow-up care is, as well as medication administration, medication adherence, that sort of thing. Um, we talk about interdisciplinary support. This is a team approach. Um, it has to do with providers, your hospitalists, your ICU providers, surgery, cath lab, etc. Also includes respiratory therapists. The techs on the floor always make friends with your techs. It makes your life so much better. Treat everyone with respect, including the techs, including housekeeping. It takes every single person in the hospital to make it function. So in closing, yes, the emergency room is organized chaos. Um, you have to focus on staying calm. Focus on your poker face. Um, this is a practice just like everything else that we do. Uh, we learn how to um, triage patients, sick versus not sick, emergency versus non-emergency. We must improve and continue to develop our communication skills. We think about what is my role right now? Um, a Foley catheter, for instance, is not priority when actively coding a patient. Are vital signs more pressing or getting a patient to a bed stat and alerting the provider the patient's sick? Are we going to have to intubate the patient now or do we have some time? These are all of the things that you are prioritizing in your care of the patient. And it's basically, this is the hard part, I think. It's all happening at the same time. So keep that in mind as you're doing your readings and your studies. Okay, some questions um, <clears throat> that are here. What assessment finding would indicate the presence of attention pneumothorax in a patient with chest trauma? Um, the answer for this one is B, severe respiratory distress and tracheal deviation. Uh, yeah, that's the correct answer. Um, actually, Muffled heart disease. 
Yeah, the answer is B. Um, attention pneumothorax causes many of the same manifestations as other types of pneumothoraxes, but severe respiratory distress from collapse of an entire lung with movement of the mediastinal structures and trachea, trachea to the unaffected side is present in a tension pneumothorax. Percussion dullness on the injured site indicates the presence of blood or fluid. So in that case, um, we would anticipate a chest tube, but it's not necessarily the same. Uh, it wouldn't be as um, uh, priority as that tracheal shift, right? Um, also indicate percussion dullness also indicates decreased movement and diminished breath sounds. They're character characteristics of a pneumothorax. And then muffled and distant heart sounds indicate um, cardiac tamponade, not um, tension pneumothorax. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do with these questions at the end is I want you all, I, I was, I had the thought while I was answering that last one, but what I want you guys to do is, um, I want you to go through the questions and answer them on your own. And then, uh, what we'll do is post the answers down in the notes, um, later. Okay. Or maybe I'll post a sheet, but I want you guys to try to do them on your own first to see which, uh, see if you get the right things. So, um, cause sometimes I think we tend to not necessarily cheat, but maybe take the easier way and just hear what the answer is. But I want you guys to really take a moment and go into these questions and make sure you know the answers and that you look the answers up. I just think you'll get more out of the exercise that way than me just telling you the answers. So, um, that will be it for the, uh, emergency lecture. And if you guys have any questions, let me know. Thank you.